Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. My name is Colby Sinasel, and I'm the Equity Research Analyst at Cowan covering communications infrastructure and telecom services. Today, I'm joined by Brady Rathus, the CEO at EU Networks, who's joining us as part of our Leaders, Legends, Luminaries, and Visionaries podcast. Uh, with that, Brady, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Colby. Always a pleasure. You know, this is a little bit different than I think some of the interviews you've done in the past. I'm, I'm actually much more focused on, on you as the individual and kind of how you got to where you are. And then we'll obviously transition to talking a little bit about uh, your experience at EU Networks uh, and your thoughts on the space. But just to start off, I, I'd love just to learn a little bit more about you and, and how you got in here. And I guess with that, I was looking at your bio in preparation for our discussion today. And from what I can tell, you've been in the telecom industry your whole career going back to 1986 when you joined BT. Uh, I guess, just tell us, how did you get introduced to the telecom industry? It was, uh, it was a bit of a stumble, to be honest with you, Colby. I, um, I didn't leave school with the sort of qualifications I had hoped to achieve on account of the fact that I didn't do any work and my middle school um, exams, I didn't need to, but my upper school exams, I did. And I discovered that a bit too late. So I worked in retail, I worked in catering, um, decided I better get serious. So I, I went to college and, and studied some accounting and um, I applied to join BT. I applied to join the post office too. That's what other guys were doing on the course. And um, I qualified through the BT process and um, I thought I was going to work in accounting and uh, but accounts in BT was billing. So um, I then started doing my stage one um, senior exams, which is um, management account exams, and going to evening school where everybody had been working on double entry all day, whereas I'd been arguing with people in Hackney to they <laughs> should pay the telephone bill. So I did that for a couple of years because you couldn't you couldn't move within two years, and um, I sort of stumbled across sales. I stumbled across being in data rather than in voice. Um, and sort of worked through a sales environment. And then I remember going up to Martlesham and I saw the Mosaic browser and I thought to myself, okay, I, I, I get this. And uh, then I've sort of been with the internet ever since. So that, that's sort of how I got started. That's amazing. I mean, there's so many stories. And, and by the way, I have one somewhat similar where you're just, you're, you're going on what you perceive as the natural path. It's, it's the path that's being presented. There's others around you that might be doing it. Uh, you get lucky, fortuitous, and you start to find your way. Uh, and, and, and you start you turn something into it. It's pretty cool. But you end up staying at, at BT for 12 years. Was the goal at that point to be a career BT man and to keep working your way up the ladder? Or were you intending at some point to pivot if you saw that opportunity? No, I think... I think I always sort of thought I'd stay with BT. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have said that I gave it like a massive amount of foresight. Um, I had a pretty good career in BT. I moved pretty quickly. Um, they looked after me well. Um, but where I was in that part of the business, it was basically getting folded into concert, which was the AT&T and BT joint venture. Um, one of my 
key mentors was over there, um, invited me to go and uh, go and join. And um, so that it didn't really feel like leaving BT per se until you left and then you realize you'd left BT. But um, yeah, I, I, I think I think if you work, I mean, there was 225,000 people in BT when I joined it. Um, you know, it, it's you. It it was a great environment. Um, people really invested in you, invested in your development, gave me a lifelong appetite for learning. Um, but uh, the concert party started and then when the concert party finished, I didn't really want to go back to BT with my tail between my legs because I was really proud of what we'd done in concert. But um, the difference in the parents' relationship from con um, conception to birth of concert was, was pretty profound. And uh, it was sort of a bit dead man walking from, from the get-go. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that in a moment, but you mentioned mentors. And when I look back on my career, uh, especially early on, earlier on, there are a few people that were really influential in helping me get to where I am. Um, anybody on your list come to mind that you can tell us about? Sure. Um, very early mentor of mine was a guy called Richard Hawkins Adams, who um, was, was training us to sell. So once I'd gone over to the sales side of the business, um, you know, I, I, did, I didn't have any experience, but he taught me how to present, how to pre present myself, confidence, etc. The, the importance of hard work. Um, but I guess the two, the two most important first was was Brian Crouch, who's Andrew Crouch's dad. Um, and he saw something in me when I was a specialist salesperson, got me over into the major account worlds, looking after the big banks. Um, and, you know, had a great relationship and he, he let me be um, and he told me when to rein it in and when to, when to go. And then Neil Hobbs, who is my chairman now, but who I work with a lot in BT, in concert, in level three. Um, and uh, he's obviously worked a lot of Columbia um, portfolio companies as well. So um, and, and Neil still mentors me to this day. Um, he'll ask me. He'll give me feedback and then he'll look at me at Zoom and say, do you actually want to hear the feedback or not? So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always say to anybody, you know, we, we do a series of um, uh, interviews on all hands in the company of which you, you very kindly did one of them. And almost universally, every executive has come back and said having early mentors were critically important to their career. And I don't think your early career I think all the way through your career it's really important to have people who are prepared to support you but are also prepared to call you out and you know for you 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 latched on to some really great mentors uh who are successful in their own right um obviously one Neil who you mentioned is your chairman today and then Crouch and then his son Andrew who went on to level three uh which I'm guessing might have been then how you got over to to level three um I mean that there that 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 also played obviously a, a big role is in terms of just being part of that inner circle, if you will, of people who are also successful, and then bringing you into that group. Well, I think I mean, I think teams are important. Um, there were there were a lot of us who went from concert into level three. Obviously, there were a lot of people from MFS who went into level three, and if you look at that 
group of level three people now where they are, whether it's us, whether it's Zayo, whether it's Equinix, you know, there is a pretty strong core of people who are in and about the industry. Um, and, uh, you know, those relationships are important, Colby. You, you yeah, relationships. So, uh, yeah, that was very much the case for me. For those who are listening who might be earlier in their career, uh, you know, what advice were you given or lessons learned early on that you can share that even a few decades later, you you think still hold up uh, in terms of things that you wish others, you know, know at that age early in their career or things that you wish uh, you had known even earlier uh, in your career? Um, I, I have a little note on my desk here, which says you're not as good as you think you are. You don't have it all figured out. Stay focused, do better. Um, you, you know, when, when you're young in your career, there is hard work is a really, really important thing um, and your ability to really, really grind it out. And I, and I, and I really did do that. Um, and I was constantly studying and I just had, had that work ethic. I think it's, it's, it's tough sometimes, you know, as I talk to our graduates when they come in, you sort of you're on this peak and you go all the way through and you graduate and there's a whole celebration that goes on and then all of a sudden you're doing grunt work and it's 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 a discontinuity that sometimes some people really struggle with um and i think you know the importance of staying humble importance of knowing what you're better at than anybody else you know what, what one thing are you better at than anybody else and how are you going to pursue that but Honestly, hard work, endeavor would, would trump everything for me every time. Um, I, it's amazing for you to, to say that the, the, uh, the work ethic, I tell my guys, I have a few guys on my team that are in their 20s, and I say, now is your time. Now is your time to work as hard as you possibly can. You, 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 you don't have a wife or family. Uh, it's just you. You may have a girlfriend. Uh, and I tell them, now is the time to work as hard as you can so that when you get to those other stages in your life, you're in a better position than you are now and that no one's gonna, no one's gonna give it to you. Um, so it's interesting, it's just, it kind of comes back down to the old fashioned same, just hard work and work ethic really do play a huge role uh, in, in terms of people being successful. Oh, look, I think, I think it's really important. Again, I'm not a big fan of like eating sushi at 3 a.m. in the morning in the office that I see quite a lot um, from the, the PE world, but, um, and, and, and I don't, I don't put a lot of store at presence. Um, and I'm, I'm talking about before the pandemic, I'm not like that Dave or, or, or Sarah doesn't win because they're the first person there in the morning, the last person there at night, but you know, the ability, ability to have an action orientation, the ability to discharge your work on a constant basis. Again, I think, I think it's really important. The, the importance of repetition and improvement, um, it, again, is an incredibly important part of, of, of business, in my opinion. You know, it's, it's, I don't want to go into the 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean it that crassly, but, you know, we, we have a, a methodical process of going through things over and over and over again and get better and eliminate waste from the process and i think you know you you your ability to really plow into that is an important part um 
While at BT, you elected to get your master's from McGill uh, as part of a sponsored program through uh, the company. Um, why did you decide to do that? Well, it was brilliant. It was a great honor. I mean, I, I did a um, master's program that was sponsored by Henry Mintzberg. We went all over the world. I mean, it was, I mean, you it was just so fantastic. It was, it was, and, and I, I had really had an appetite for learning. I still do. I still read a lot. I still listen to a lot of things. I really, I'm really passionate about that. I harass my team constantly, read books, read books, because it's, it's the way you learn that, that, that program was incredible. And we started in Lancaster in England. We went to McGill we went to Bangalore, we went to Kobe, we finished up at INSEAD. Um, and, you know, we, there was 50 people on the course from all sorts of sponsoring organisations, from R, RBC through the Red Cross. It was extraordinary and, um, you know, created some incredible relationships, learned so much, had such a such an exposure to so many different ways and cultures. And I was working almost exclusively in an international environment at that point. You know, I get asked questions. We get asked to go on panels so constantly about when I can talk about fiber to the home in the UK. And I'm like, seriously, there isn't anybody less qualified to talk about these things than me. I happen to live in London. It's useful because it's where the time, where the maritime is. So it's good from a time perspective. I can talk to anybody in the world and not, too awkward a situation but most most of my career has been in an international capacity so um learning that knowing that being exposed to different cultures has is, is always been incredibly important so it was just an amazing opportunity it was a lot of work but um yeah it was uh, it was a great pleasure when you're interviewing somebody today for a senior position is it important to you that they have some type of advanced degree you know, you sent me over some, some questions in preparation, and that's the one I've been thinking about the most. Um, I just don't think it is. Um, you know, we've had a pretty stable team in EU Network, so um, it's, it's the point's a bit moot, but no, not really. I think, you know, I've, 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 always, um, I've always been um, very uh, entranced by... Um, professionals because I remember when I was doing my accountancy exams and you had to pass all of them or you had to start again and that that sort of discipline that lawyers and accountants have etc so I sort of find that interesting um you know I'm talking to my son at the moment he's like really wants to do an MBA and I'm like and I'm I'm I'm, I'm trying to push him as to what why what 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 is it what is it you're hoping to get from studying the MBA and if, if I can understand that better then, then yes, but if it if it's, I don't know where it's a European thing, but I don't I don't see that structure as important as as potentially other things. So um, I do see it for the most part, but I'm not sure it's my my earliest tick box. I think the way I I thought about it is if you go to a good school, if you get into dancery, you're just increasing the odds. Yeah that you'll be successful in whatever it is you're trying to accomplish it by no means guarantees anything. But for me, if I see, let's just pick, you know, the classic Harvard undergrad uh, on someone's resume, I'm, I'm probably more likely to read it in detail to really 
make the decision if I want to interview that person or not, opposed to uh, if it didn't say that, uh, and it said some no-name school, uh, I might be a bit more dismissive. Um, and I would say that if they had their MBA, um, I'm probably also more likely to consider bringing them in uh, opposed to someone who doesn't. But by no means is that going to be the reason I ultimately hire them, but it, it might be the reason that they get the chance that someone else might not because they didn't have that same background. Yeah, I, I absolutely hear you. And I think also, you know, the, the, the college path in the States is far more developed than it is elsewhere, certainly in Europe. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, we've, I'm just going through the process of recruiting some of the moment and went to Cambridge, you, you, you know, I, it, it certainly says, okay, if you, if you manage to study at Cambridge university, then um, you're going to be pretty smart. Um, so, um, I mean, I'm not saying if you get an MBA, no, I don't want, that's not my point. My point is I'm not sure, in, in answering the question, I'm not sure it was it's it's the first thing I look for. Um, it, certainly, it certainly doesn't hurt that. Um, just moving on. Um, so after BT, you go to concert, which was a JV between BT and AT&T for two years. But then in December of 2000, in the midst of the telecom bubble bursting, uh, you go to level three. Um, was it obvious to everyone when you joined level three that the bubble had in fact burst? And I guess how quickly was it before you started thinking about level three, maybe not making it? Well, again, I, I, you, 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 you have a very um, flamboyant name for the podcast. And I was thinking, that's interesting because I'm none of those things. So I thought to myself, um, look, <laughs> Neil, Neil went to level three and he asked me to join him um, and I'd worked with him in BT. I'd worked with him in concert. He was my best friend in the world and he was over there. You, you know, I, I, I knew that, the, you know, the telecom bubble had burst. I mean, you know, the stock price at level three was, I think, 25 bucks when I joined um, down from like 125 bucks. So it wasn't it wasn't like it. Oh my goodness, what a surprise happened. I didn't think it was gonna go down to $1.89, which I think was the lowest point when I was there. But it just I, I we did a lot of great things in concert. And as I said, for all of the difficulties of it, because you know, ATT and BT were in a completely different position from when they decided to do the JV. And it was like both parents hated it from out of the gate, but yeah. Dave Dorman ran it. He was brilliant. Loved working with him. Did some amazing things with global contracting models, etc. And I just wasn't prepared to go back into BT with my tail between my legs. I wanted to work with Neil. I observed Level Three for a long time. It carried more internet traffic than anybody in the world. And I thought there will be these peaks and troughs. There just will be. I mean, if you think of what the you know 90s were like and the sort of money that put into telecom I mean it was going to have to blow up somewhere um the good news for um level three was they'd raised more money than they meant and that was pretty lucky because if they hadn't got that extra money then maybe it wouldn't it would have been a different story but um I, I level three was absolutely amazing the the quality of the people in level three, I'd never seen anything like it in my career. Standing in that boardroom and looking around the table at 
Dan Caruso and Jack Waters and Neil Hobbs and Jim Crow and Buddy Miller and all these people. It was extraordinary. Um, but it was tough. It was tough. Um, so you, were, you were eyes wide open going into it, to your point. It's not like you thought it was still 1999. No, no, I, uh, but to your point, you appreciated the quality of the people. You appreciated the bank account, the amount of money that Level 3 had, which I'm guessing you thought would allow them to kind of weather the storm. I didn't. Uh, you know, you were going to go there. I'm, I'm, I, I, you're, you're imbuing me with um, intelligence that I didn't have. Um, you know, we looked, uh, I started and I was, my role was to create a world where we could make sure the European carriers bought on the level three network. And I've been there for like seven or eight months and Kevin O'Hara asked me to become the president of Europe. And it had 1,671 people working in level three Europe. And when we'd finished, there was 300 people. Um, that you, you, you don't... No, no amount of foresight can teach you what that's like. Um, and to be perfectly honest, when Kevin told me that we needed to take the business adjusted EBITDA positive or, I didn't ask what the or was because I was pretty sure it wasn't a great answer and I didn't know what adjusted EBITDA was either. Um, but we sort of worked our way through it. And uh, again, I, I'm immensely proud of um, the time I had at level three, what I learned every day from incredible people and who'd achieved incredible things. You know, and they had this, you know, the, the company I had didn't have a switch in its network. It was the most extraordinary business in the world. And, um, you know, it has its ups and downs as all business do, but um, it was it was a great, a great time for me, a great learning experience, met some of the most incredibly professional, you know, you know, Charles Myers or Grant Van Royen, you know, just incredible people um, and dear friends. It was, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. You're, you're mentioning all these people and hopefully those listening to the podcast recognize a lot of them because to your point, a lot of people who are at level three in those early two thousands uh, are very successful now at other companies uh, in and around the, uh, the, the telecom uh industry. I want to shift over and talk a little bit about culture. And on your LinkedIn profile, uh, you got a recommendation from a gentleman named Brian uh, Gant uh, in 2009, when he worked for you at level three, he's now at Microsoft. And he said, Brady is probably the most creative, motivational and intellectual leader I've ever worked for in my entire career. His ability to provide and communicate common vision and rally people from completely different backgrounds to work as a cohesive and motivational organization is what sets him apart. Um, a lot of what I take from Brian's comments has to do with creating a culture. Have you been intentional about how you've gone about creating a culture, whether it was at level three, when you were the president of Europe or at EU networks? Yeah, I, th I, th I think so. And also we, we built the content business in level three too. So, um, which is when where Brian, um, Brian and I work together. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think I think cultures are incredibly important to an organisation, and a cohesive culture does, you know, it can it, it can achieve a great deal. So it make it makes the sum of the parts more. And um, 
yeah, we try to be we try to be very thoughtful about how how the culture of our organization is. And certainly again in level three as well. Level three was a complex culture because obviously it had such a huge um MFS thread running through it. And um which was a pretty different business from um certainly prior to the UNETs um stuff. So it, yeah, cult, culture culture is everything. Um and you, you I, as a leader, want want the culture of that organisation to to be visible to anyone, um, and that's a, it's a critical piece. You you said you have some um, notes written on your computer in front of your computer. Can you read those off again? Because I think those kind of represent your culture. Well, yeah, okay, so it's, you're not as good as you think you are. You don't have it all figured out. Stay focused. Do better. Um, you know, we, we, we have a set of values in the organization. I have no intention of, um, of reading out, uh, uh, wrote, but Richard and I, when we moved into our worship street, um, organizations, we were walking down the Clerkenwell road in London and, um, there was this quite famous print in the window by, um, Anthony Gormley and it said, work hard and be nice to people. And uh, we put that up in the day we moved into that office in the in the main reception. And now it's in all of the office. And we didn't do that. Other people did that. And I think that's that's culturally where I like us to be. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it doesn't have to be sophisticated or complicated. Well, you and also. I keep hearing in my back of my head. Well, he would say that, wouldn't he? So again, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to sound like all high and mighty about it. But yeah, I mean, that's 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 what we try to do. And um, you know, again, one of the things that Jim Crow said in level three, which was always really important to me, was he said, "Look, when it comes to making a decision." When you make that decision and then it was written about the next day on the front page of the New York Times or the Financial Times or the Frankfurt Allemann and you weren't proud to work for their company, then don't make that decision. And uh, that, that, you know, it's all very well saying to people, I want you to act with integrity. But again, that, that sometimes is hard for people to get their hands around. But knowing that they would be supported if that if they weren't proud of the decision they made appearing on the front page of uh, one of the world's leading business newspapers, it gives you, it gives you, it certainly gave me a lot of confidence when I was doing a lot of really hard things in level three. Um, and certainly that's part of, of, of the culture of EU networks. Do you want me to read you out what I have written on my computer in front of me? Yes, you should. All right. I have deep breath, stay calm, be patient. That's all on one sticky. And then another one I have, have a sense of urgency. And then on the last one, I have actually part of Cowan's cultural values, which are vision, empathy, sustainability, and tenacity. And for me, just having these types of reminders front and center every day um, gives me a little bit of a framework to kind of go about my job. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, you can. Have, I, I write in my book every single week. I, I have one big thing. Um, I have uh, 
my Zillow habit tracker where I have circles in my book and I write it out in my book. And yeah, I am a digital guy, but I write out my book and I write down the things that I care about, resilience, persistence, tolerance, patient, being calm and compassionate. And I just write them down every time. And even if even if just the act of writing them, then I get 1% better at doing them, then that's worth doing. Um, moving on again, one of the companies to come out of the telecom carnage was EU Networks. Um, can you tell us about the company's connection to MFN or Metro Media Fiber Networks and AboveNet and, and how the company was formed? So, yeah, I mean, MFN went pretty spectacularly bust um, and entered chapter 11, which I think they were in for four and a half years before they came out as above net under Bill Purchase leadership. But um, at that time, and again, if any of this historical facts um, isn't quite right, then can we put that down to my advanced years? But um, from, from the outside, it sort of looked like the company turned in on the UK and there was an entrepreneur who was part of the MFN European leadership, a guy called Noel Meany, and he picked up all of the European absent uh, um, assets, absent a part of the London network, and then the French Metro, which became Neo, which is now part of Zaya. Um, and uh, Noel built a company called Global Voice, um, and then Columbia invested in what had become then EU Networks in 2009 and became the major shareholder. And uh, that, that's, I joined as part of Columbia. I'd come to know the Columbia guys as a, as a result of Dan Caruso, who had... Um, had he Well, he, he did... Uh, yeah, John Siegel, exactly. But he... Um, John and Dan had partnered in ICG with John Scarano, and then they went on to create um, Zayo, and that was happening sort of pretty concurrent with um, EU Networks, and Dan was an investor in EU Networks as well at that time. Yeah, ICG was, uh, that was great. Now let's do that on steroids. Uh, <laughs> that basically what Zayo was. Uh, but what they did with you is, they or, or with EU Networks, is they basically recognized, you know, there's these great assets out there, uh, that, you know, we're basically still at that time, pre-2010 is kind of the, 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 the timeline to which I use as the threshold, uh, it's trading at reasonable values. Um, and I guess they got into what I guess you're saying was Global Voice, and then it was rebranded as U Networks. Yeah, so, I mean, it was like 23 million of revenue and like minus four, minus five million of uh, EBITDA. Um, and a lot of that revenue came from, a data center in Amsterdam. There was a bit of a business in Frankfurt, um, a little bit in London, a little bit in Dublin, but it was, you know, it was, it was a it was a pretty small business. Um, and you know, they, they were in a particular fix. They were listed in Singapore. They had some convertible debt coming due, which was priced way higher than the market they were at. And you know, Columbia had the choice they could have let it go to the wall and tried to pick up the you know various constituent parts out of bankruptcy or keep it going and maybe they end up paying a little bit more but that uh, that that would be good for the customers that would be good for the people etc and, and they chose that path and uh, they're still they're still part of our capital structure still up still our partners today and um, they're, they're 
they're amazing people. In your first annual report as CEO in 2009, you referred to EU Networks as a bandwidth infrastructure company. What, what do you mean by that term and how was that different than how things were being thought of before then? Well, I, th- I, think, I think there was a sort of unwritten cabal between you, me and Dan that uh, I, I just wrote the back of them. You, you'd create a communications infrastructure, I think, which encompassed towers, data centers and fiber and uh, bandwidth infrastructure was the fiber bit. And we were all pretty happy to go along because the other two traded much better multiples than we did. So, um, but more seriously, we really are genuinely an infrastructure business. You know, we, we say with bandwidth from the ground up, we saw dark fiber wavelengths and ethernet and the ethernet really genuinely is more point to point than, than we do. We do more things than that, but we're not up and down the stack. We are absolutely an infrastructure company. And, you know, we have like 450-ish data centers connected to our network across Western Europe, deep fiber, north, south, east, west, routes between, superhighways between. It's all about the infrastructure. And um, hence, you know, that's what we say. We want to be Western Europe, Western Europe's leading bandwidth infrastructure provider. But our true fans, again, we're not looking, we were looking for 100 true fans. We don't want 4,000 customers. We want 100 true fans by consistently over-delivering on one or two key benefits. that That's our story. Again, no original thought there. I, I stole that directly from Kevin Kenny and his 1,000 true fans. And um, it's like a mantra. And you keep saying it, you keep saying it, keep doing it, keep working hard, keep saying it, keep doing it. Remember, you're not good as you think you are. If you ever think you're smarter than anybody else, you're an idiot because you're just not. Wake up humble, wake up stupid, and just hopefully go to bed a little smarter than you got up. And if you do that and repeat, which for me next March will be, I can't even remember what years it is now, but um, I, I've been I've been doing that since 2009. We've been doing that since 2009. We check our installs, we check our discos, we check our what sales we're going to make, what. Um, progress we're doing on infrastructure projects, what network events we've had that week and what our day-to-day position looks like every, every week. Yeah, goes back to a lot of what you've been saying throughout this uh, this conversation. Um, we said in a report last year, we think one of the more interesting things about 5G and the edge is it will enable more of an autonomous internet built for machines, whereas today's internet has been largely built for humans. And to layer it on even thicker, uh, we talk about how this is what will unlock what's been described as the fourth industrial revolution. Are you buying into any of this? I certainly think about it a lot. I mean, you've got to remember, since March 2009, there wasn't a week that hasn't gone past without one of my shareholders saying, what are you doing with 5G? What are you doing with 5G? Is it like, do you know what it's like in Europe? Do you, do you, do you, do you, I mean, we still have people complaining about what they paid for their 3G licenses. Um, and it, it's, it's complicated. Um, now, if I look at some of the things we're doing, we did a deal in Cambridge with Light Blue Fiber and connecting to Cal Data Center and some of the um, education and learning, high performance compute, uh, life sciences really interesting um we one of the reasons why buying the loop in manchester was so important to us was because 
it's got data center connectivity. Manchester's important city. Um, and, but Ashley's really smart. Ashley's the managing director of the Loop and they've got two big sports grounds there. So that's interesting. They've got the Media City where BBC moved to. That's interesting. And Manchester's quite geographically small. So, you know, if you look at B BAI and the deal that they've done with London Underground, you know, London Underground's big. It's not, it's, it's not, it's not like, you know, Penn Station to 7th Avenue. It's, 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 it's huge to go from Upminster to Ealing on either side. And, and, you know, how to run that network and do that. That's not really what we do. But if I look at Manchester, Manchester's small. You know, Negroponte said in being digital that communications would be time and distance independent. It's pretty time independent now, but it isn't distant independent because at the end of the day, when you're in the infrastructure business, you've got to dig holes and you dig holes by meters. And um, so I think there's some really interesting opportunity. I mean, again, there's obviously a huge machine-to-machine -machine world already. Um, now, the world of sensors and autonomous vehicles and all of those things, do I think that they're going to come and do I think they're going to come much quicker than, than we think they do? Yes, they do. I mean, again, I, I often quote um, future crimes. I forget what the I forget the gentleman who wrote it, but you know, he, he, he said people look at progress and they look back and say, well, this is going to have to slow down, and it never does. And he said... Today, the internet is the size of a golf ball. Tomorrow is going to be the size of the sun. Mark Gordon, I think the guy's name is. And, and I think about that a lot because I genuinely do believe it. So whether, whether, it's, whether it's 5G, whether it's autonomous vehicles, whether it's sensors or whatever it happens to be, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I'm not sitting on the sidelines. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to be involved and engaged. But it's complex. And it's so complex in um, Europe because there are so many stakeholders um, from government to European Commission to PTTs. And they all have their various challenges, which sometimes can get in the way of entrepreneurship and innovation. Um one of the things I took from what you just said is that just the use cases of the internet are just going to continue to grow. Maybe we don't need to be in the business of predicting what those are going to be or how it exactly evolves, but the, the use case and effectively the need for the types of services to which you provide are, are, are not going anywhere and will continue to expand. And, and from that perspective, then there should be a huge opportunity that continues to be in front of uh, EU networks. Yeah, we, we're dumber than everybody else. So we just say traffic doubles every year. And I I think my, my, my big takeaway from this is you're a very humble guy, by the way. I, <laughs> I would say to my team, you work in unit terms in the fastest growing industry in the history of the world ever. Wouldn't it be really disappointing if you look back on your career and didn't take advantage of that? And um, that, that's how we see it. Um, and and, and it's, it is actually what we see. You know, traffic doubles every year. Um, we've approached the, the, the lightning round of our conversation. So I'm going to ask you to keep your, your responses to, to 30 seconds or less. Uh, and I have three important questions for you. Um, the first one is, will it make sense to merge EU networks with a tower company at some point? Don't know. I don't know. Uh, second question, will you be going to PTC in January? Variance allowing, yes, I will. Okay. 
And then lastly, uh, is it still too early to talk about the Euro Cup? It will always be too early to talk about the Euro Cup. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll conclude. Uh, Brady, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully at PTC. Always a pleasure, Colby. And thank you for what you do. You do a wonderful job of explaining what we do. Um, I always enjoy, I always read everything you write. Um, and uh, I appreciate it and I've pre appreciated it for a very long time. Thank you. Thank you, Brady. Okay, take care. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.